Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. It's a new podcast from WQXR that interrogates the culture of our classical music scene, and we look at ways to make it beautiful for all of us. In this series, we're looking at representations of Blackness in opera. This is the last episode of this series, and you're still listening. Glad to have you here. I've been to the opera at the Met. It's glorious. Everybody should go once. Um, I wish more people would go. I know it's expensive to go, and it would be cool if there was a way that was less expensive for more people in the community to be able to get to opera. But like, hey, lots of times it is not in English and it's hard to understand what's happening, but the Met has these cool little things where they translate it for you on the seat in front of you so you can follow along. And always the performances are gorgeous and the sets are gorgeous and the costumes are gorgeous and all the people who work there do really hard work. And like, it's worth going just to appreciate that. So even if you can't follow the story, the music's beautiful and everything else you're watching is beautiful. So everyone should go to the Met. The Met's got to hire her. She needs to be doing promotional materials. But that's the sort of excitement that we should all feel when we go hear music. Okay. Okay. Many cultures, many voices, one people. I grew up playing trumpet and piano, and at some point early in my studies, the symphony orchestra came into focus. We'd go hear the orchestra in elementary school. But the only man who looked like anybody in my family sat towards the back of the orchestra in the string section. Now, here's the thing. Those environments, those orchestras, they're part of our education system. So what do our kids take away from these experiences? when they don't get to see representations of themselves, or they only see representations of themselves. What does that say about the beautiful diversity of their classrooms? We gotta do something about that. And so in my work as a concert presenter, I try to make that experience feel more like an American experience, less like a European experience. And for a lot of African-American musicians, that experience involves church. It's where I first started playing music, and it's something that I have in common with some of the singers who took part in this series. Chauncey Packer, Sharon Willis, Lemmy Pulliam, and Janina Burnett. They were all involved in the work of the church. My mom and dad were both musicians in the church. My mom, she carried the choirs and played piano. My father played guitar and drums and bass, and so we we sang and did music in our home and in church. That's what I knew growing up. My dad was a preacher. Yeah, I was a PK, <laughs> and uh, so we grew up in the in the church. You know, I sing and love Abyssinian Baptist Church. I grew up in Beulah Baptist Church in Vine City. We sang in the choir, children's choir, and as we got older, in the you know the teen and adult choirs and. You know, I sang solos as a, as a youngster, which is how I learned that I could sing in church, in the sunshine band, as they called it. When I first started to study music, I felt it was so compartmentalized that this is gospel, this is classical music, and this is 
what you have to leave to to study classical music. Um, I feel, on the contrary, is you bring your full musical experience with anything you do as you grow as a musician and as an artist. I feel I was informed brilliantly as in the music world in the Pentecostal church, how I grew up in Alabama as a Southern Black man. I always thank my mother for the training that we had in church. There was discipline there. So that set my sort of my discipline up to, to receive and to um, have the exchange of presentation. It wasn't until after I had gone off to college that I started incorporating it into the music I would sing in church. I think partially that was because I knew most people wouldn't quite get it because it wasn't something that they were used to hearing. La fatal pietra sopra me si chiuse Ecco la tomba mia Del di la luce più non vedrò style that they were used to hearing in the Pentecostal church. And it was it was more of just as I began to learn more about my own self vocally and musically, I was able to better incorporate the classical style into gospel music and to, to use my classical technique to enhance the gospel singing. In this series, we're looking at representations of blackness in opera. We are talking about race in opera. We are pulling these issues out from the shadows. We're taking them out from underneath the rug where they've kind of been buried, hidden. We're shining light on them. In this episode, we're wrapping up the series with a conversation on Mozart's opera, The Abduction from the Seraglio. In the opera, there's a black mute. He's an enslaved man. I'm going to come back to him later. But there's also Azmin, who is a slave. He's an overseer for Pasha Salim's harem. This is how Azmin is portrayed in the opera. Azmin, he's an idiot. He's not quite bright. I think he's an idiot, actually. But uh, he's loyal, and um, he's loyal to a fault, I find him terrifying. He's so boorish and so insolent. Every minute he's trying to seduce or, or come on to me. Remember that enthusiastic opera goer at the top of the show? 
the beauty of opera that she talked about? Well, in an opera-like abduction, where's the beauty for someone like me? The guys on stage who most resemble me are both enslaved, and one of them doesn't even say a word. In Magic Flute, the other Mozart opera we covered, the black man in that opera, he's there for laughs, for entertainment value. Perceptions of people get passed down, and they filter in real life. Listen to what Ian George, now Ian is on our production team, listen to what he shared with us. Keep in mind that scene in Magic Flute where Monostatos just dances uncontrollably. One of my first jobs out of college was I worked at Top of the Rock Observation Deck. It was tourists coming in all day. We were on our feet for like eight, nine, ten hours, but we had a blast. And we just talked to people from all over the world. And oftentimes... You know, managers would, would come up to me like, hey, you know, Ian, you should really sing and entertain these people. And I was young and I was like, oh, this is fun. And I did it. But I mean, I was compensated for being there. I wasn't compensated for that. If I'm looking back on it now, just being honest, it was just like, Put on these tap shoes for our guests. He's not going to say no. He loves doing it. He likes it. Somebody listening to this podcast is thinking, hey, that happened to me. Yep, I know that's right. Hey, I've been there. I know what he's talking about. When we are perceived uh, as buffoons or vixens or mammies, that has no redeeming value for me. Why would I write that? There's nothing redemptive about it. My stories, I want them to be inspirational. Sharon Willis composes operas, and she leaves her audiences feeling uplifted and beautified. I've been to some of her operas. You leave there feeling like you just left the salon. The response that audience members have given me have been very positive. Many of them had to be coerced by their neighbors or people who knew me to say, I'm coming to an opera. I don't want to come to an opera because first of all, they're going to be singing in a language that I don't understand. And they're going to be hoo, 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 and that does not mean anything to me. But then they come out converted saying, is this what opera is? And they say, no, this is what Sharon Willis writes. One day at a time, one day at a time, until we find ourselves in a new place. But until then, don't you
Darling, Promise Me. That comes from Pink Lady, an opera by Dr. Sharon Willis. That was her on piano with Leslie Hamilton, soprano, and Mel Foster, tenor. We're going to take a brief pause. This is Every Voice with Terrence McKnight. And when we come back, we'll come back with this guy. Hey, I'm Peter Sellers, and you're listening to Every Voice with the one and only Terrence McKnight. If you ever call my voicemail, that's the voice you're going to hear. Thanks, Peter Sellers. We'll be right back. This is Every Voice. Movies, music, celebrities making bad choices. Crooked Media's weekly podcast, Keep It, has it all. Each week, culture experts Ira Madison III and Louis Vertel unpack the latest controversies, praise character actress appreciation, and share all the gossip in a week. Expect bold and unique queer commentary, award show grievances, and iconic guests like Billy Porter, Michelle Yeoh, Ariana DeBose, and Cheryl Lee Ralph. New episodes of Keep It drop every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. This is the last half of the last episode of this series on representations of blackness in opera. In this series, we've looked at two operas by Mozart. They were both written during the transatlantic slave heist. And Verdi's two operas were written during America's Reconstruction period. After Reconstruction, it will be another 70 plus years before black singers and classical musicians integrated opera houses and symphony orchestras in America. Classical music got stuck because in 1925, who sold the most records in the world is Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong, 1925. Now, why won't those people invite to the Metropolitan Opera House? Excuse me. And why did we say that Stravinsky and Schoenberg are the only important composers when Bessie Smith is alive? What are you talking about? There's a historical backlash. Opera lost it big time and didn't just freeze those two people out, froze composers out of the opera house for two generations. So opera has a lot of catch up to do and catching up means new pieces. Catching up means let's hear it now and let's hear it with all the power and beauty and vision that opera is capable of. And let's not just go try to fix the past, let's actually address the present in real terms. It's abnormal that a repertoire is made out of pieces from the past. Normally Verdi and Mozart there were only contemporary operas. So the only solution to what we're talking about is that all opera has to be contemporary again. And every once in a while you do an old piece, sure. But no, it's about now, it's made by now, it sounds like now, it moves like now, it talks like now, it's now. And that's not just the future, that's the present. Yeah, so that's why it's important for us as a people to come together, right? Talk about who we are. Someone else who may have something to say about the direction of opera is someone who's been silent for the last 250 years. As we wrap up this episode, I want to go back to a character we haven't discussed. He's a character in Mozart's abduction from the Seraglio. He's described as a slave, a black mute. He didn't say a word, so I'm going to speak up for him. He was a silent witness in this opera. He witnessed everything. The violence, the cruelty, the kindness, the empathy, the notions of who deserves to be free and who doesn't. Oh, I bet he has something to say. During Mozart's lifetime, he was associated with at least two black men. 
Perhaps he wanted us to see this character, this mute, minus all the centuries of those racist stereotypes that were so popular in Western thought, art, literature, and pseudoscience. Maybe Mozart wanted us to take a look at opera through the eyes of this mute. And when we do that, we might all start to see and hear his voice and the many voices of humanity that have gone unheard. And when we do that, the voice we hear is every voice. I just couldn't resist it, but it's true. I'm Terrence McKnight. Thanks for being with us on this journey. We've got a lot of folks to thank as we wrap up. All those artists who showed up and made this program possible. UZ Brown Jr., Lemmy Pulliam, Peter Sellers, Rand Bryce Davis, Thomas Hampson, Kevin Maynard, Sylvia McNair, Melisha Taylor, Dr. Melvin Foster and Jennifer Welch Babbage, Dr. Sharon Willis, Nathan Stark, Sir Willard White, Mary Beth Diggle. And also thanks to my colleague, Nemet Habachi, who joined us for our episode on Aida. Oh, so many folks. Thanks to our artist, Aaron K. Robinson, who did the illustration for the show. Theodora Kuslin, and everybody, the whole team at WQXR New York Public Radio, who made this show possible. And a huge thanks to the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts. You know, that's where our tax dollars go. I got to thank my good friend, Harry Belafonte, the late Belafonte, whose life and career inspired so much of the work that I did. I always thought, man, what if Belafonte is listening to my show? I got to get it right. Every Voice with Terrence McKnight was written and produced by Terrence McKnight, David Norville, and Tony Phillips. Our research team includes Ariel Elizabeth Davis, Pranati Diwakar, Ian George, and Jazz Ogist. This episode's sound design and engineering was by Alan Gofinski, and our original music is composed by Brother Jeremy Thomas, featuring Dr. Ashley Jackson on harp and Brother Tito Sampa on percussion and vocals. Our project manager is Natalia Ramirez, and our executive producer is Tony Phillips. The executive producer for WQXR Podcast is Elizabeth Nanamaker, and Ed Yim is the chief content officer at WQXR. This project is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts. You can find more information on the web at arts.gov. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to rate it, rate us, review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Terrence McKnight. 